All right, why don't we pray one more time together before we get started, okay? Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we come before you now, and we're so grateful and thankful that the things that we sang are genuinely the things that your gospel, your truth, your love, your salvation produces in our hearts, Lord, and we can only say, Lord, crown him. Crown him with many crowns for what he has done. We thank you, Lord, for the grace that you've given us, the mercy that has been dispensed to us. Truly, Lord, you are the ultimate means of grace, your presence, your fullness of joy. Lord, thank you for um, your word that promises to revive us and to bring us into a deeper and closer communion with the triune God of Scripture. Bless our time, we pray, Lord. Give us life as we look at your word and uh, revive us in the way, Lord, so we can walk with you and so that we can serve you all the days of our life. We ask your blessing now on our time and on the, uh, the extent of this sermon series. We ask that you would just really put your hand on this as a special time for your church. For your glory and your name's sake, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, you're probably taken back a little bit that we opened up to Psalm 119, and let me just kind of be up front uh, with uh, what it is that we're doing here. Uh, how did we get from Hebrews to Psalm 119? <laughs> we're taking a bit of a break. We've been going pretty, um, we've been going pretty hard and furious through the book of Hebrews, and we come to chapter 10, and I thought that just would be an appropriate time for us to take a break from Hebrews. We'll come back to it. Don't worry, Hebrews will be there waiting for us. But uh, I thought we should take a, a bit of a break, and when I do that and I think about what to preach, obviously I go into a time of personal reflection. Uh, I go into a time of really uh, evaluating our church, thinking about where people are, uh, listening to the conversations, trying to gauge where people are at in the Lord, and all of it coming together and asking God for wisdom on what it is that our church needs to focus on for now. And uh, what the Lord has put on my heart, it didn't take very long, I've got to be honest with you, sometimes I wrestle for days on end trying to figure out what it is that I want to, to preach and, and seeking God, if nothing less, for a burden to, to burden me with some direction, but it didn't take very long, and um, after thinking about it for some time, you know, boom, 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 out came out all these sermons into my mind, and I just thought, you know, I better preach that and be obedient. <laughs> it's a little bit of a venture of faith, but you can entitle our sermon series, a number of things. Essentially, we're looking at biblical spirituality. What does it mean to walk with God? You could entitle it Knowing God. You could entitle it, maybe better yet, Kindling for Walking with God. Being revived by God. I like that. And so what we're asking is, how does God spiritually feed us, nourish us, revive us? How does God strengthen us so that we walk with Him in light? Uh, in His light, we see light. How do we walk with God in the light where He dwells? How do we walk with God in a way that is uh, productive? How are we going to flourish in the, spirit, in, the, in the Christian life? Those are sort of the broadest ways that I can bring up what it is that I want to convey to us. But at the same time, I'm looking at this because as I think about the state of spirituality in the church, when I think about piety today versus maybe what you might find when you pick up an old, reformed, Puritan paperback, uh, 
like A Godly Man's Picture with Thomas Watson, or others. Maybe you pick up uh, a book by uh, John Flavel on the glories of Christ, or maybe you pick up John Owen talking about communion with God as we're looking at in the uh, men's study. You may find a deeper spirituality there that may be present in your own life, present in my life, and present today. I think the reason why is because if we're honest with ourselves, and this is where kind of much of this is birthed out of, is that today we are extremely distracted. Today we are extremely busy. Today our lives have become inundated with what many call modernity, living in a modern world uh, where our whole life is made up of little rings and jingles that go off in the little divine glass oracle that sits in your pocket all day. We are bound to our technology. Um, People get frustrated with us when we don't return a text in 2.3 seconds. If we're honest with ourselves, we are inundated with media. That's just part of the symptom. We're busy, we're overwhelmed, so that one sociologist, and citing here, David Wells said, culture has developed what they call a cultural ADD, where people are distracted easily. Attention spans are hard to come by. You see that today. I know that ministering on a college campus uh, for many years now, uh, many people in the millennial generation have a difficult time looking at you in the eye, keeping a conversation that's intimate and real and substantive. If it doesn't have to do with the latest social trend on social media or Facebook, then they lose attention span very quickly. And we are also susceptible to this. And so what we're asking is, how do we rid ourselves of all these addictions and symptoms and habits and routines that make it very, very difficult for the soil of deep, faithful, biblical spirituality to be cultivated? I think that's kind of what I want to know. And so I've gone to Scripture looking for how do we come to the Word of God because if there's one thing that Scripture tells us and even if it was evident in this psalm, is that God calls us to a deep, close, intimate communion with Him. But we are so easily sidetracked by our surroundings. I've been studying recently a book on jihad. I've shared that with you um, uh, here recently. Uh, It is actually one of the most foundational books ever written on the subject of jihad by one of the most prominent jihadist theologians of the 20th century, Zaid Qutb. He wrote a very famous book entitled Milestones, or Signs Along the Path, depending how you translate that Arabic phrase. I'm reading it because I really want to understand the mind of a jihadist. Kind of a morbid thing for some of you probably, but for me, I'm very interested in this. Um, and I gotta tell you that I am so impressed by one thing uh, in the writings of Zaid Qutb, and I see why his philosophy has taken such deep root in the world. And that is because one thing that Zayed Qutb uh, stresses in his manual on jihad is that, is that Islam is for implementation. The Quran, he says, is written for one thing, application, execution, living it out. You go from the theoretical to the concrete, and, if, and you do not have Islam, if you do not. And I thought, wow. Now, it's all 
wrong, and it's all false, and it's all dark, and it's all demonic doctrine, as you well know. But as I examine my own life, I wonder, is that the way that I view the truth? The truth of the Word of God that the realm of the theoretical is only for the realm of the concrete, the realm of the actual taking what Scripture speaks to us in propositional truth and then having it have a real application in my life now. Jesus Christ called us such a standard, did He not? He told Matthew when he was standing in in his booth collecting taxes in a very crooked and sordid fashion, he said, Matthew, follow me. That means real-life Christianity. Leave your station, walk, and follow after me. It doesn't get any more radical than that. And so what I want to do is ask the question, why is it that we do not risk more in the service of Christ? Why is it that we do not believe stronger in the promises of God? Why is it that we fear working out our salvation, ironically, in fear and trembling? like we ought to. Simply put then, what is needed today is a concrete Christianity, a Christianity that is lived out in comprehensive obedience, exactly as Romans chapter 6, verse 17 tells us. That's really the burden of my heart. What you find in the pages of Scripture is Christianity that is lived out in sacrificial love to one another, A confident Christianity that is full of faith and zeal for the glory of God, so much so, as Paul says, he does not even count his life dear to himself. He has greater ambitions, much greater. This is a costly Christianity where we are willing to pay the cost of discipleship, where Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and get on the Calvary road. I think we're losing sight of that type of Christianity. We write books about it. Don't waste your life. (laughs) Radical, right? Great books, great volumes, but how much of that do we really realize in our own lives so that there is a clear distinction between us and the world, the world's coping mechanisms, the world's moral maxims, the world's religious superficial platitudes. I think the kind of Christianity that we have to envision here is different. It is the difference between building our lives, our houses, as Jesus says, on the rock of spiritual invincibility, fortitude, versus building our lives on the erosive shores of what Michael, uh, uh, oh boy, I'm forgetting his name at the moment, Uh, Michael Horton, sorry, because he didn't actually coin the phrase, he borrowed it from a different person, but he says, this is right, that what's left over when we settle for nominal Christianity is moralistic, therapeutic deism. Deism, God is detached. Therapeutic, we are there to have our felt needs met. Moral, we will conform to a certain standard of right and wrong. And yet, there is no life in the soul of man. Nominal Christianity is the greatest problem. One of my friends is, you know, famous to me anyway for saying, 
The problem with the world is not radical Islam, it is nominal Christianity. But there are other reasons why I think we also have to, we have to focus on this idea of what does it mean to walk in this way with God, to be revived by God, to, to feast on God, to have a true spiritual pious life in God. And I think I find it in the simple things. I hear it, if you would, in the echoes of Christian conversations everywhere. I, maybe it's because I'm a pastor, I'm a little bit more susceptible to this, but I hear the sighs of the soul. I hear the weariness and the voice of the brethren. In the flock, I hear discouragement, disillusionment, disappointment, even despair. And so I thought, Lord, make it real simple. I just want to encourage your church. How do I do that? And so I thought, we need to focus on what does it mean to be spiritually revived? The word revival <clears throat> is risky because it means different things to different people. You tell a Baptist, I'm preaching on revival. <laughs> and what that typically means is you're preaching about what it's like to do a special message for a congregation or something. Uh, at the same time, in the history of the Reformation and really in Puritan literature, the word revival came to be synonymous with uh, 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 the phenomenon of mass conversion where God was doing extraordinary uh, feats and uh, extraordinary acts of supernatural revival on a mass scale. You can read that, for example, in Ian Murray's book, Revival and Revivalism. Also, Jonathan Edwards talks about that in his book uh, on revival, where he talks about the revival of Northampton. You can, he you can see that kind of revival, but that is not primarily the kind of revival that I am thinking of. My idea of what, what, I, what I have in my mind is more of a personal spiritual renewal. That is what the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 119 when he says, revive me. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what we need. And the experience of Personal revival like this can happen in a myriad of ways. It can be sudden or it can be a constant thing that we can be discussing. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 quickly just to show you an example of maybe of a sudden, unexpected burst of personal revival among maybe a select few group of people. Maybe just a little bit of the background of 2 Corinthians uh, when this book was written, prior to this book being written, Paul had written another letter, and this letter was written as a rebuke to the church, so much so that it's called the sorrowful letter of Paul. He makes reference to that letter right here in this context, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 9, when he talks about making the church sorrowful, he's talking about through that letter. It was a powerful letter, rebuking them for all sorts of things that they had been compromising on. He says, but now I rejoice that you were made sorrowful. That's kind of an interesting thought. <laughs> I rejoice because you were made sorrowful. Let's understand what Paul's saying. <clears throat> he says, not that you were made sorrowful. Excuse me, he says, I now I rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, sorry, but that you were made sorrowful, there it is, to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. 
For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So godly sorrow is in keeping with godly conversion is what he's saying there. But then look at the description or look at the character of their personal renewal. Behold, what earnestness this thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourself, what indignation. That's a righteous indignation in the purest sense of the word. What fear, what longing, what zeal. When's the last time you can honestly look at your life and you can say, someone would look in and describe you with the adjective, what zeal. He says, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent of the matter. In other words, because of their repentance, they were renewed in the purest way. They had a, they had a very basic, pure Christianity. They were on fire for Jesus again. But there's also sort of a constant spiritual renewal of the Christian life that we can say is rooted in the ordinary means of grace. Teaching about that today in Sunday school. Well, God revive us, revives us through the everyday disciplines of going to church, taking the ordinances, serving in the local church, joining a local church, fellowshipping with the brethren, personal Bible study, perseverance, pursuit, pursuit of holiness through the normative means that God has ordained for our lives. Revival can be considered constant, continuous in the life of a Christian that produces a sort of steady growth. And for that, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. This is going to bleed into our principal text, but 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. He says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, I begin in verse 17 for a reason. I think you know verse 18. But verse 17 is crucial. You therefore, beloved, 2 Peter 3, 17, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace, that's an imperative, a command, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. It is therefore the personal aspect of revival that we're focusing on. It is not seeking revival in terms of conversion, but revival in terms of personal growth. Personal growth of knowledge. Personal growth in grace. That's what we're looking for. But I include verse 17 to show you that that happens in the context of doctrinal discernment. Turn with me to Philippians, if you would, quickly, just to show you this one aspect of growing in grace and what that looked like, again, for Paul. So we got Peter's take on it. Grow in grace, grow in knowledge, because there are theological dangers everywhere, theological adversaries everywhere in the same breath. The same train of thought, the Apostle Paul says, beginning in verse 9, Philippians 1, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment. Christianity is 
rooted in a doctrinal life. Christianity is an exercise in theology itself. We cannot know what it means to love without theology. We cannot know what it means to grow in grace without growing in knowledge. And so we need to grow with respect to God's Word. And as I think about personal revival, personal renewal, spiritual growth, it has to begin right there. Matter of fact, that's where uh, J.I. Packer begins his book, Knowing God. How many of you have read that? The opening chapter of Knowing God, that's what he zeroes in on. He zeroes in on the importance of knowledge and growing theologically because we live in a very theologically averse society. So I want to focus on that issue of the importance of doctrine. So where do we go in Scripture to look at all of this? Well, I wanted to focus on the psalm literature, but guess what? Psalm 119, more than any other uh, psalm, has replete references to the very thing that I'm getting after, which is spiritual revival, the very thing. It is um, what scholars, Psalm 119 is what scholars have identified as a Torah psalm. It is a psalm that is focused on the law, which by extension just simply is a reference to all of God's Word. Now that we can safely say Psalm 119 is referring to not just the Ten Commandments, not just the Pentateuch, but now we can say by extension and by reason of the fact that God has progressively revealed more inspired Scripture, all of Scripture, as Timothy tells us, or Paul tells us in Timothy, all of Scripture is inspired and therefore all of Scripture is profitable. And so, above everything, the psalmist understood that personal renewal was a doctrinal issue rooted in the revelation of God's Word. His Word was what revived him. Revival is inseparable from theology. Poverty of the mind for believers must and necessarily lead to poverty of the soul. In other words, our personal growth and our strength is not mainly derived from our tears, in other words, it does not derive from our emotional experiences. It does not derive from our circumstances or even our contrition or even our experiential ecstasies or our circumstances or those around us and the zeal of the brethren. It is derived mainly the fountain of our zeal, the fountain of our renewal is on the basis of God's Word. David knew that. That's why David said, revive me not according to all those things, which are good and right, but principally, fundamentally, rudimentary. Revive me according to your word. So we need to learn how do we grow in our devotion to the word of God in a world that is so busy, in a world that intoxicates us and lures us away to every other conceivable platform of media to take up our thinking time so that we spend very little time actually thinking deeply about the things of God. Well, I may just give you a sample 
of what Psalm 19 represents. Now, you might want to jot these down, but just the reason I decided to focus on Psalm 19 is because of scriptures like these. And there's a whole robust theology. You can do an entire theology of revival from all of Psalm 119. We're going to focus on one stanza and go deeper into one stanza. But let me just give you a sample from the entirety of it all. Psalm 119, verse 25, he says, My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. He says in verse 37, turn away my eyes from looking at vanity. Revive me in your ways. Verse 40, behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. Verse 93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them I have been revived. Isn't it amazing? It has been tested and and tried and has been found to be true. That's what, the, that's what the psalmist is saying. I have been revived by your precepts. Verse 107, I'm exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. And their affliction, he doesn't mean I'm exceedingly sick. Like I got a sickness or a disease or you know. But affliction there is mainly spiritual. Affliction of the soul, vexation of spirit. Have you ever been there? Vexed in your soul. Listen, if you're trying to walk in righteousness in this world, there is no way that you can walk around this world without having a vexed soul. Just like Noah. Vexation of spirit. Vexation of soul. As you look around at the despair and the hopelessness of society. You saw the New Year's celebrations. All the same old songs. All the same old things. All the same old partying leads to the same old place. Hopelessness. Man has not found out what is his chief end, what is his chief goal in life, to know God and to enjoy him forever. And so again and time and time again, they go back to the wells that cannot satisfy. So several things can be pointed out just by virtue of these psalms. But now, Psalm 119 is really, really where I want to focus in on. But before I do that, I just want to give a small caveat here because I thought, you know, as I was writing this manuscript, I thought, you know, everything's about the Word, the Word, the Word, the Word. But I've heard many Christians talk about their difficulty with the Word. They're not big readers. They don't study like I do. Um... Their attention span is difficult. They have dyslexia. Uh, They're not, you know, they didn't do well in the books. And so is Christianity just for bookworms? Well, sort of. (laughs) What I would say is that you got to be the worm of one book, (laughs) which is the Word of God. But I I also want to convict you today a little bit (laughs) By, 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 by telling you, you have attention span for other things, don't you? You can learn the difficult work manuals at work that you have to memorize all the parts and all the menus and all the things and all the policies and all the things, the protocol and the Bible and the, and the software at work, and you're able to do extremely complicated things on a computer, but when, amazing, which, which all demand extremely rigorous amounts of attention span. But strangely, don't be deceived, my brethren, a strange mist falls over your eyes when you open the Word of God. And so, I think oftentimes when people say, I'm not really a big reader, what they're really doing is they're giving an excuse 
why they can pay attention in other areas of life, but not the Word of God, the ultimate area of the Word of God. And I understand that that I just prepare you now. There's going to be a lot of generalizations over speaking, so you're just going to have to give me grace. Now, let's go back to the Resh stanza, Psalm 119, verse 153 through 60. Because there you have a cluster of references to personal renewal in short order. He says, look upon my affliction and rescue me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Greater your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. I behold the treacherous and I loathe them because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your, right, of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Now, obviously, what's the only way that we can get to all of the riches and the blessings of what Psalm 119 here is telling us is if we do a point-by-point exposition. Well, <clears throat> We can do some of that, but we'd be here for another two hours, and I don't know that you would like that too much. (laughs) Some of you would. I've had some of you come up to me and say, stop qualifying that. Just preach. And yet, pastors don't do that. (laughs) Got to be sensitive. Okay. First, look at the context of the cry for revival. He says, look upon my affliction and rescue me. Isn't it amazing that in time of personal affliction, whether it is physical affliction, but more importantly, spiritual affliction, the very thing that holds the key to our recovery is the very thing we often end up avoiding, which is the Word of God. More than human counselors, more than listening to uh, the voice of man, more than putting on Christian music, more than just tuning out and sort of just dropping out, mentally checking out, right? We should be going to the Word of God. He says, I do not, watch this, forget your law. I do not forget your word, or your law. And he says, plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Now, what's remarkable about that word there where he says, uh, where he says, revive me according to your word. Is it that Hebrew word there can literally be translated promise. Re- he says, revive me according to your promises is one way we can translate that. And isn't it remarkable that when we go into times of deep discouragement, the first thing that we're tempted to forget is what God has promised us. We forget that God has given us, as Peter says, precious promises that you can build your whole life upon if you take heed to the Word of God. But we are so quickly tempted to fly away from the promises of God and go into other wells, go into other messages. The reality is is that when we are hopeless, when we are discouraged, when we are vexed, when we are down and out, We will try to remedy ourselves in one way or another. But the wise person knows that the best way to remedy yourself is to not forget God's law and to be revived according to God's promises. 
things that he has promised to do for you and I. Amazing. When we don't do that, all we do is we end up extending the time of our spiritual demise. That's it. Right? And so, we cannot forget his promise. And if we forget God's word, we forget God's benefits. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 103, verse 1, Blessed, bless the Lord, O my soul. This is what happens, and this is what's at stake when you forget the promises of God, the word of God. This is what, that's, what, what is at stake. You lose sight of these great and magnificent benefits. Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and, at all time, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget his benefits. What are his benefits? Who pardons our iniquities. What are his benefits? He heals our diseases. What's our benefits? He redeems our life from the pit. You think you're really in the pit? Oh, you're not in the pit. You're not in the true pit. He redeems your life from the pit of hell. And that is an incentive for all of us to cheer up. He crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. He satisfies your years with good things. Oh, reflect on all the good things. Just driving here today, I told my wife, what a beautiful day. Beautiful sun. We got a chance to go down to Rowlett and go look at the tornado damage. How many of you have done that? Anyone here done that? Yeah, that, that will make you see how beautiful this day is. Uh, terrible damage. And I actually went down to Joplin, Missouri to see the F5 damage of F5 tornado in Joplin when that hit way back. And that was, uh, that was Rowlett times 50 or 100, if you can even fathom that. Um, it was destruction as far as the eye could see in any direction in Joplin. Uh, tornado wind was so strong it pulled up the grass off of the ground. Remarkable. Like, like if a fresh sod that had been put down, it just sp- scraped the ground off. Terrifying. Don't forget, he satisfies our years with good things, and he renews our youth like the eagle. In other words, he keeps us vibrant when we don't forget his law. God cannot lie. We forget that God promised us and that he cannot lie. We forget that all things are for our good. This is, this is what's at stake. We forget that his loving kindness is better than life. We forget that our future is set, it is secure, and folks, it is sensational in every way. All of this and more is forgotten when we forget God's word. By contrast, he says in verse 150, there, the wicked have an indifference to the word of God. They are completely indifferent to the word of God. Salvation is far from the wicked. They do not seek your statutes. So when we do not fly to the word of God in times of discouragement, we become like the wicked and we isolate ourselves from God's word. But David says, great is your mercy, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. Now, here he makes a reference to revival again, but here he introduces another term, ordinances. The term ordinances refer to God's legal declarations, the things that God has 
decreed legally for his covenant people. And so uh, I take this to mean that this is really a covenantal term where we do not forget God's covenantal promises, God's covenantal decrees that he has made for us. It's a covenantal God. Notice also the connection between God's loving kindness and his word. We could almost say it is by the word of God that the loving kindness of God is revealed to us. You want to know how much God loves you? Stick your nose in the book until you are convinced of it. By meditating on his word, by believing his word, by experiencing the word, like Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, the word of God that performs its work among you. We will find God's power to revive us according to his loving kindness when we seek him in his word. This is so much so, in fact, that David presents his case before God, a case that is based on a love affair with the law of God. Look at verse 159. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me. The one thing that he stuck his claim on was not, oh, look how spiritual I am. Look how much I go to church. Look how much I tithe. Look how much I give. Look how much I serve. How tirelessly I serve you in the church. No. He staked his claim on religious affections for the word of God. He says, consider, he's talking to God. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me. It's amazing. It's amazing sort of interaction between God and David here, right? He's saying, God, look, I love your law. Revive me. Can we say that to God? Lord, I love your law so much. Therefore, it's almost like he's saying, you owe me revival. (laughs) David was staking his claim on this very thing. He says here, he says when he says, I love your precepts, he's basically saying what John said in the book of 1 John, the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. And so when he says, consider how I love your precepts, the other thing that he's doing is he's willfully submitting to the lordship of Christ because the word precept literally means the the instructions that God has ordered for his people, the directives that he gives us to order our lives in an orderly fashion. Those things, David says, I love those things. He loves, in contrast to the Jews in the Gospels, he loves to have this man to be lord over him. To be Lord over him. It directs us and it makes us wise and it makes us joyful. Psalm 19, not 119, but Psalm 19 is an important psalm because it is a parallel psalm to Psalm 119. I don't know if you knew this, but in the Bible there are three Torah psalms Psalm 1, Psalm 19, Psalm 119. Psalm 19 introduces those themes that will be exposited to a greater degree, to greater precision, and greater depth in Psalm 119. In Psalm 19, verse 9, again David says, The precepts of the Lord are right, watch this, rejoicing the heart, not bumming out the heart. Rejoicing the heart, not making the the, the heart dreary or weary or leery, but making the heart rejoice. Do you rejoice when you consider God's precepts? Do you rejoice when you read how God expects you to live in this world? Oh, how I love your law, he says. 
Oh, how I love your precepts. Revival looks like joy. That's what it looks like. It looks like joy, as Peter says, unspeakable joy, full of glory. I really believe that the Christian life is not to be lived in excessive sorrow. If it is, it is our choice, our folly, our decision. Because what God has given us is he's given us a a treasure trove of joy-producing truth. And so, two more things. David sees everything in its totality, two things. The totality of the character of Scripture and the totality of the enduring nature of Scripture, the continuation of Scripture. David says, the sum of your word is truth. It's not until we come to this place where we can say, Lord, the sum of your word is truth. But here's the thing. This is not David just making an intellectual comment on the nature of Scripture. He's not writing academically. This is as practical as it gets. So what is David saying? When he says the sum of your word is truth, what he's saying is that every part of the word of God can be trusted. Every jot and tittle. In other words, the word of God is totally trustworthy. It will never deceive us. It will never mislead us. It will never confuse us. Well, we might get confused if we study the word of God in depth. There's no question. It's not that the word of God cannot be perplexing or complex. Oh, but even within the complexity, there's a sure guide to truth. If you dig, as John Piper has said, if you rake, if you only rake, you get leaves. But if you dig, you get diamonds. So you got to dig. The Word of God forces you to have to dig deeper to get the gems that you're looking for. Life-sustaining treasure. That's what the Word of God possesses. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 130, verse 5, he says, I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in His Word do I hope. Because you can build your life upon the Word of God, put all of your trust, all of your hope, all of your reliance, and you will not be disappointed. It's also a call to appreciate God's Word in its totality. How vast is the Word of God. Look at... uh, I can read it to you, Psalm 139, verse 17. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Think about that. In other words, one theologian I heard say once, the word of God is as vast as the universe. Just when you think you've cornered the market on this thought, this doctrine, this idea, fresh light comes out. You read a book, you read a theologian, you read a commentary, and fresh truth and fresh connections, and you begin to connect new dots that you never saw before. The Word of God is just, it's elaborate. It is a labyrinth. It's an everlasting labyrinth of truth. I don't think anybody ever, doesn't matter what theologian they are, From beginning to end, top down, inside out, and every kind, no theologian has come to the full bottom of it. I was just struck with that. When you look at the works of Jonathan Edwards, here are two volumes, massive volumes on theology, and at the end of some of his dissertations, what do you have? Questions. 
He just lists question after question after question after question. I've got this question. Not going not to get to it because he's going to die soon, but he's, he leaves his questions. Question, question, question. I thought, he never came to the bottom of it. He never came to the bottom of it. And we will not either. We can mine and mine and mine the word of God, and it will always give us dividends. Always. Oh, there's so much there. That means it will never, we'll never get to the bottom of it. It also means that it will never stop satisfying us. It will never stop feeding us. It will never stop nourishing us or building us up. It will always be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path in a dark and dreary world that seems to be getting darker and darker. The last part of the stanza, an important part, says this. It talks about, and really what we could describe as a call to persist in the Word of God when we reflect on the nature of God's ordinances. He says, every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. But it also means that God's decrees are inflexible. His judgments are set in concrete. They will not change. The Word of the Lord endures forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the Word of the Lord will endure forever. God's word does not change because as Psalm 55, 19 tells us, God does not change. Personal revival can never happen apart from God's word. That's, that's what I wanted to do, is lay before you reasons why we have to begin with a staunch devotion to the word of God. I mean to make you studious people, reflective people. Not that you all have to run out of the doors and go learn Greek and Hebrew. It would be nice, but... You know, that's probably not realistic. But, but, but it doesn't matter. You have to be saturated in the Bible. You have to know the Bible for your whole life. And I tell you what, I've seen people that have spent their lives, their entire lives, meditating on Scripture, and oh, they age with such joy. Uh, I'll never forget, you know, we used to do um, convalescent ministry in Southern California. We used to go visit an old saint of God, an old uh, lady that used to sing hymns, we used to sing hymns with her, and boy, I tell you, that lady, she sat there in that bed, she couldn't walk anymore, she was shaking, she couldn't do this and that, she couldn't do anything, but what, you know what she did? She'd sit in that bed and look at us, 95 years old, and she would quote scripture just like this, and she'd always have a big smile on her face, and the joy of the Lord was in her heart, and she would never, ever uh, fail to sing hymns to, to, to recite the, the verses that she had memorized. That was a woman that spent her life, maybe not in the academic world, but she spent her life in a spiritual world, nevertheless. She spent her whole life memorizing the word of God. And on her dying day, she died saying the Lord will provide. And that's what I want for us. So we embark on a new journey. Next week, Lord willing, I want to talk about what is the greatest object or what is the greatest, greatest uh, uh, obstacle rather? What's the greatest obstacle? What is the, what is the biggest adversary that we face to spiritual renewal like this? Sin. And so that's what we're going to look at, Lord willing, next week. All right, let's pray. Father, Lord, we just pray that um, as we look at these things, Lord, that each one of us here uh, in our hearts and in our lives, we would make time for your word, that our affections for your word would grow, and uh, Lord, that we would take these studies and meditate on them, and Lord, that even your people would reflect and 
look back on this manuscript uh, here and, and look at the text and the verses. There's so many verses that I left out, but it just reiterates that truth of the Bible, what it says, that the sum of your word is truth, Lord. Your, your word is so vast. And so, God, I pray that you would encourage your people. I pray that part of that encouragement would be new life. Part of that encouragement would be that they would come into an experiential Christianity where they actually practice what is preached. They actually practice what they learn, and it just doesn't become theoretical abstractions in their mind, Lord, but they actually live it out for the glory of God. Lord, this is my prayer, and I pray that you'd honor your word now. Thank you, Lord. Bless our time. In Jesus' name, amen.